we're going to begin with our call to gather. This is another erasure poem from Rhodey. This is from Ruth 1. In Bethlehem, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing them a home. The Lord said, would you come with me? Would you wait? Would you remain? I will stay. I will be with you. This is the beginning. Sure, welcome to Emmaus Way. We are a community of people captivated by the gospel, trying to participate in what God is doing in Durham and beyond. Um, well, we're really glad that you're with us today. Um, we have this community song each week. We participate with each other of all ages. Rody, can you? Yeah. You do it back, everybody. Back. Yay. <laughs> Joyful is the joyfully hidden God, rolling cloud of thy beyond all Majesty in darkness, energy of love, word in flesh, the mystery proclaiming. Joyful is the to be um so it's really exciting tonight Suze will lead us down here in songs of prep and then is going to do songwriting with the kids upstairs um this evening's absence is uh, an absence of convention we talked a lot about what how to name the absence that we were trying to get at absence of the status quo, absence of the rules that we have always known. Um, and so absence of convention is what we're wrestling with this evening. And we're getting at that through the story of Ruth and um, the story of these women who are stripped of everything that they have known and the structure that was supposed to take care of them and any way out. And so they have to kind of forge their own way. Um, and so I chose some, some songs that... Uh, kind of like came to me as we were speaking about that. And so um, I know we've done Shine a Different Way before, but this continues to be a song for me that names um, the not just the survival and like the, the kind of like work of survival, but like the goodness that can come on the other side of having to make a different way through things. Be 
Then I picked a song for Naomi. Um, this is a song that I wrote, uh, and I think I've played it here before, about, um, I was hearing a lot of stories from women in prison about getting locked into uh, partnered relationships that they felt like they couldn't get out of because um, women are so often valorized, right? For like, stick, hang in there. Like, just hang into there in that like dangerous home. Um, and so this song is about, uh, it's about Florence Nightingale. Um, who was the famous Crimean War nurse, and uh, just kind of wrestling with that idea that women are um, asked to carry like this kind of this bloodshed or this violence, um, and then like valorized for it, and uh, that made me think of Naomi and the the bitterness that she finds herself in because she finds herself in a situation where she no longer fits and she is no longer protected and she's no longer thought of. And so this one is uh, for Naomi. There was nothing so good as a man who needed you. Wounded and bleeding and calling your name. Nothing as good as feeding that bearded mouth Putting together and drawing a bed There was nothing so proud as that skirt on a battlefield Wading through wreckage to touch a rough neck Nothing so proud as collecting those pulses Adding them up and counting them back Who taught you to swallow the sword, Miss Nightingale? Who taught you to hold someone's life in your lungs? Who 
who taught you the war, who brought you the war. It was never your war, and it's not anymore. There was nothing so bright as a worm in the dirt. The wonder of wishing for nothing but now. Of knowing your arms would carry you onward. Of laughter that bounces like sun on the snow. There was nothing so true as your heart, my love. My daughter, my friend, just as true as they come. You warm and alive, they were wrong to replace your way in the world with a taste for the dying. Who taught you to swallow the sword, Miss Nightingale? Who told you to hold someone's life in your lungs? Who brought you the war? Who brought you the war? It was never your war, and it's not anymore. Who brought you the war? Who brought you the war? It was never your war. I know for myself they were wrong to replace my way in the world with a taste for my death. I know for myself they were wrong to replace my way in the world with bad taste. Ooh. And when I thought of Ruth, for whatever reason, I felt like When You Were Young was the song for Ruth. Um, this kind of like, uh, if Ruth lived today, you know, like it wasn't what she thought it was going to be. This marriage <laughs> that she ultimately finds herself in um, was not the one that she thought it would be. And just liked the way they say it. You sit there in your heartache Waiting on some beautiful boy To save you from your old ways You play forgiveness, watch it now Here he comes Doesn't look a thing like Jesus But he talks like a gentleman Like you imagined when you were young Can we climb this mountain? I don't know. Higher now than ever before. I know we'll make it if we take it slow. Let's take it easy, easy now. Watch it go. We're burning down the highway skyline on the back of a hurricane that started turning when you were young. When you were young And sometimes you close your eyes And see the place where you used to live When you were young They say the devil's water, it ain't so sweet don't have to drink right now but you can dip your feet every once in a little while you sit there in your 
heartache waiting on some beautiful boy to save you from your old ways you play forgiveness watch it now here he comes he doesn't look a thing like jesus but he talks like a gentleman like you imagined when you were young when you were young i said he doesn't look a thing like jesus i said he doesn't look a thing like jesus This is different. So yeah, to catch us up a little bit, we're in our fourth week of Lent, which is also our fourth week reflecting on absence. Together as a community, it's a theme that we took up, um, yeah, in a really intentional way and have tried to infuse in so many different ways from the Erasure poem at the beginning to a series of absences that we've been taking on week by week in our sort of conventional ways of meeting with each other on Sunday evening. So just to note some of those, if you aren't as familiar with Emmaus Way or you've been gone for a few weeks, we first uh, took on a sort of fasting absence and got rid of our usual water and snacks and coffee. And then Suze, as our resident artist for Lent, uh, sort of started leading us in guided meditations as in place of our passing of the peace, which is usually a more rowdy sort of greeting each other sort of space. And then in the third week, we were talking about an absence of order, and we started to play around with what have become really familiar rhythms of our worship gathering, that we begin with a call to gather, move through songs of prep to a dialogue, and then confess and absolve and end at the table. We sort of recentered the table, both in the middle physically, but also in the middle of our gathering, and played with different ways to order the worship gathering. And tonight, we've taken on an absence of convention. And we have always met in the round as a Mayus way, at least any way I've ever known it, but it's never been quite this round. This may be the most round it has ever been. So as we're taking on those absences together, we've been asking this persistent question, when we take on an absence of whatever kind, what presence fills that space? What presence do we sense or discover in the space absence leaves behind? And what does our presence in those kind of spaces mean? And so Suze has been a great presence with us this Lent. Um, she's been doing a songwriting class for an, about half a dozen adults that I hear is going fantastic um, that she's taking upstairs tonight. Uh, she's been sending out weekly reflections, so keep an eye out for those. There should be another one, number four, coming tomorrow to your Eway Social. And we've really been asking of you guys as co-ministers in a way that I think this circle centers very well tonight. What does your presence mean as we been, begin to accrete absences in the way we're worshiping together, as we reflect on absence as a theme during Lent, as we started Lent saying, remember you are dust and you are heading back there. What does our presence mean? And so in the circle tonight, I don't, I wasn't even thinking about this, but you are all exceedingly present. <laughs> it was interesting to watch which of you were knowing the lyrics to the killer song very, very well. And we are very present to each other. So holding that absence and presence, uh, we're going to draw, draw that further into the dialogue tonight. We've talked about absences of power and home and order and convention, so many things that make us comfortable. And in our conversation, even just here on Sunday evenings, it seems really clear that we carry around absence with us. It is in us, it is around us, it has seeped in many ways into our very bones and our very soul. And so we don't have to name it so much as just notice it. And so faced with absence like that, what does, what present shows up? And a presence we want to suggest tonight and gather ourselves around tonight is maybe loving kindness. And so I'm going to guide you into a time of meditation uh, focused around 
that idea of loving kindness. In the gospel that captivates us, we find that we are to love God and love our neighbor as we love ourself. Yet far too often, we don't love ourselves all that much. How are we then to love God and love neighbor if we don't love ourselves? Tonight, our confession stems from our lack of loving and invites us to love and be kind to ourselves and one another. This is a meditation of care, concern, tenderness, loving kindness, friendship, a feeling of warmth for oneself and others. The practice is a softening of the mind and heart, an opening to deeper and deeper levels of the feeling of kindness and pure love. Loving kindness is without any desire to possess another. It is not a sentimental feeling of goodwill, not an obligation, but it comes from a selfless place. It does not depend on relationships, on how the other person feels about us. The process is first one of softening, breaking down barriers that we feel inwardly toward ourselves, and then those that we feel toward others. So I'd invite you to take a very comfortable posture. Begin to focus around the solar plexus, your chest area, your heart center. Breathe in and out from that area as you are breathing from the heart center and as if all experience is happening from there. Anchor your mindfulness only on the sensations at your heart center. Breathing in and out from the heart center, feel any areas of mental blockage or numbness self-judgment, self-hatred, and drop beneath that to the place where we care for ourselves, where we want strength and health and safety for ourselves. Continuing to breathe in and out, use either these traditional phrases or ones you choose yourself, and begin to say to yourself, May I be free from inner and outer harm and danger. May I be safe and protected. May I be free of mental suffering or distress. May I be happy. May I be free of physical pain and suffering. May I be healthy and strong. May I be able to live in this world happily, peacefully, and joyfully. Now move your awareness to a person who most invites the feeling of pure, unconditional loving kindness, a love that does not depend on getting anything back. The first person is usually someone we consider a mentor, a benefactor, an elder. It might be a parent, grandparent, teacher, someone toward whom it takes no effort to feel respect and reverence, someone who immediately elicits the feeling of care. Repeat the phrases for this person. May she be free from inner and outer harm and danger. After feeling strong, unconditional love for the benefactor, move to a person you regard as a dear friend. And repeat the phrases again, breathing in and out, still from your heart center. Now, move to a neutral person. Someone for whom you feel neither strong like nor dislike as you repeat the phrases allow yourself to feel tenderness and loving care for their welfare now move to someone you have difficulty with hostile feelings resentments Repeat the phrases for this person. 
If you have difficulty doing this, you can say before the phrases, to the best of my ability, I wish that you be. And if you begin to feel ill will toward this person, return to the benefactor and let the loving kindness arise again. And then return to this person. Now, move to an agent of humiliation and shame, one who by vocation and sensitivity, naivete, selfishness, or inability to imagine other circumstance embodies the wishes of empire or a human economy separate from God's economy. Repeat the phrases for this person. And if you have difficulty doing this, you can say, to the best of my ability, I wish that you be. If you begin to feel ill will toward this person, return to the benefactor and let the loving kindness arise again. And then return to this person. And now after reflecting on these difficult persons, radiate loving kindness out to all beings. Stay in touch with that ember of warm, tender, loving kindness still at the center of your being. And then slowly return to this space. Welcome back. When I um, reflect on the power of loving kindness as a practice that changes us, and when I think about deep absences and what can fill that space, um, which in some ways, right, loving kindness can fill that space, but other things could as well. I find myself returning and thinking again and again about Gregory Boyle's two works, Tattoos on the Heart and Barking to the Choir. For the place where and the people with whom Boyle has made it his life's work and his living, um, they know deep absence. They understand and have experienced the deepest of darkness, the abyss of violence. And yet, somehow, in the very spaces of absence, narrative after narrative that Boyles shares in his writing, in his speaking, and the people that go with him across the country to share about their life. We find the power of loving kindness, even loving kindness toward enemies, filling that space. And I shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again because I think it is so counterintuitive to what we really think is possible Yet at the heart of the story, I think, is the gospel by which we are all captivated. And it is a narrative of deep absence, an absence of convention, and how that absence of convention, though, is rooted in this open table with which we are about to come around. Boyle says this, on Christmas Day, I asked a homie who was an orphan and abandoned and abused by his parents and worked for me on our graffiti crew, what did you do on Christmas? Oh, just right here. Alone? No, I invited six other guys from the graffiti crew who hadn't had no place to go. And they were all. And he named them. And they were, each of them, enemies with each other. 
I said, what'd you do? He goes, you're not going to believe it. We cooked a turkey. Did I mention it tasted proper, G? Did I mention it tasted proper? Boyle then writes, So what could be more sacred than seven orphans, enemies, rivals, sitting in a kitchen waiting for a turkey to be done? Jesus doesn't lose any sleep that we will forget that the Eucharist is sacred. He is anxious that we might forget that it's ordinary, that it's a meal shared among friends, and that's the incarnation, I think. In the depths of absence, stemming from abandonment, abuse, and rivalry, came out of life an absence of convention for these seven guys. And in the absence of convention, they could have looked at it and done life as is. And yet there was a reorientation to relationality that filled that space. A loving kindness for self and other, even for enemy, to invite an enemy into home. A reorientation of relationality centered in a really simple meal. Eucharist, even, as Boyle calls it. And while there's no proper turkey on this table, the open table, week after week, I think really invites us into an absence of convention. That the way things are, aren't the way things have to be. That perhaps it is in the simplest of elements that the most abundance exists. And that we can come around this table and be known and loved by one another and by a God who invites us not to run away from the absences, but to be open to what might be found there. That is the table I invite you to tonight with homemade sourdough, bread, and gluten-free crackers, and grape juice and wine. Wine's in the pitcher with the brown on it. Um, you can talk. It's still our open table, so feel free to serve one another and talk to one another and break bread and pour wine or juice for one another. Saying the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or you may say the love of God for you, the peace of God for you. And after we have come around this table, we will continue to talk about the absence of convention in the first chapter of Ruth. So let us come to our open table. And so I bring us back from the table, still in the middle of things. And I absolve you with these words. Belonging creates and undoes us both. Amen. Okay, so um, this is like circle is. I'm having feeling feelings of this all being in a circle. The absence. Um, so we're halfway through Lent now, halfway to Golgotha, and as been mentioned, we've talked about absence of power, home, control, tonight, convention. We have, have had absence of food, absence of order in our worship order, in our gathering, right, how we're sitting, absence of passing the peace. But I'm curious before we like dive into Ruth and the absence of convention and what presence might be found there. Um, on your Linton journey, what's resonating with you about absence? 
or how has it been making you feel? Like what's kind of going on? What have you, as we have been participating on Sunday night in absences and perhaps in your life and living outside of this space, um, in the presence, yeah, of absence, what fills that space? Or what have you been thinking about? I think for me, um, in the presence of absence, particularly with shifting things up, I'm surprised by how much anxiety I feel when some things that seem so familiar are absent. But others, what's been resonating with you with absence? In the absence of Duke approving the light rail, I'm yeah. excited about what's going to fill its absence. Yeah. going to be interesting to see, right? And if it's going to take decades or not for something to fill its absence. Yeah. Hopefully not. Others, what's like resonating with you with absence? What have you been thinking about with it? I've been thinking about, <clears throat> Soren's been a little bit of a phase of waking up earlier in the morning for the last week or two, and um, he's just helping us get ready for a lot of sleep. <laughs> absence of sleep, but also how in the midst of that there's some power exchange where you can have, still have enough to keep going. about, uh, so James and I, we are five and a half months into doing a commuter marriage, and so Monday through Thursday, the absence, um, but how it's filled this presence of intentionality whenever we are, like, in a way that, yeah, sometimes when something is, isn't there, or is there in a different way, how it causes a different intention. Any others on absence? In January, a neighbor, who was also a good friend of mine, passed away. And um, for a whole month and a half, her house sat empty. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened. Nothing happened to it at all. And then in the last two weeks or so, they completely re renovated it took all her stuff out in a dump truck. And, and there's a real absence there. I, every time I go by that house, I feel it. I feel I miss her. Um, now her little house is different. And there's going to be new people in there, which will be wonderful. But there's a real, a real absence there. You know, when I walk out my door and look to the left, you know, her car's not there. And, you know, she's gone. Thanks for sharing, Joy. Tonight's text, um, like Joy, the absence um, from death and grief, um, it's very much present in Ruth 1. And we're looking at a narrative that probably most of us know and have thought about or talked about. And in some ways, Ruth, the story, chapter, Chapter 1 in the book of Ruth is probably slightly more palatable than the plagues from last week for some people. And this notion last week, right, of the absence of control. 
Um, but really, there's still a lot um, of absence of control within this text. But how Ruth and Naomi really have a choice of how they might respond to the very things with which they had no control. Um, so would someone quickly, it's a long one, so if you want to split it, read Ruth 1, or one person read the entire thing, but, and as we're reading, be looking for what sticks out to you as different absences, like what's absent, so. Anybody, read Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there for about ten years, both Malan and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab Lord had had consideration for his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you, or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. So what absences do we find in this story? Perhaps what particular absence is really resonating with you as we read it? 
too? Right. And the same ones are usually the cause of not natural causes, but fluid. Yeah. yeah. Others, what absences? They have like no economic ability. Yeah. Absence of economic mobility and power. Yeah. Very much so. And you know that, right? In part, whenever Naomi says, I have no sons in my womb for you, right? This notion that really it's the men that hold the power, even a fetus. Others, what absences do you find? Left because of famine, but they lost the land, right? For for Naomi, for an Israelite. You know, so much in the last two weeks we've been about the Israelites heading towards land, right? Like that's that move towards. And so here they've been forcibly moved out from that and everything that, that goes with it. Even even the sort of like family surrounding structure that Naomi had fell into. Absence of husbands equal absence of offspring. Absence of husbands, absence of offspring. Yeah. Others. What absences do you find? Absence of name, right? Naomi wants to leave her name behind. What? Um, conventions or things that society might deem right, appropriate or the way things are to be? Like, what traditional conventions do you find absent in this text? I think one I see, going back to Naomi and her name, in some ways Naomi is claiming power by renaming herself. So perhaps the convention of the woman's role in that act is shifted a bit and is absent. But others, what other conventions do you find absent here? The way the text is set up at least, it feels like um, the relationship between Ruth and Naomi is not what you expect to see. Like two women yeah. running together and saying, we're going to be family now instead of you know, finding husbands or her. Yeah, for sure. You would expect maybe, right, in Ruth chapter 1, for there to be new men in the narrative rather than Boaz later on. I mean, he comes pretty soon, but isn't quite there. Yeah, thanks for that, Clinton. And the societal convention would be that you would marry among your same people, right? Yeah. So you've got cross-cultural relationships so. that goes against the convention. Yeah, very much so. <coughs> Any other absence of convention that you all find in this text? It is pretty obvious, right? The relationality being an absence of convention and how you think about family and friendship. Because um, it really was flipped on its head, right? Um, because Naomi didn't have sons for Orpah and Ruth, but Orpah and Ruth also were of no worth to Naomi in that society because they were not with child, right? So they should not... Um, have gone together. And that's really why Naomi was like, you aren't pregnant. <laughs> My sons have died. You need to go back with your people. That is where you belong. That is the convention, the way that things are supposed to be. And so Naomi really tries to get rid of them because she's grieving. Here they are, right? Orpah and Ruth are foreigners. They aren't even her people, 
great. Um, and Orpah decides to return to Moab, right? She's the one who chooses the stable world of biological family. But Ruth is different. She chooses outside kinship by binding herself to Naomi, her companion and friend. What I find so interesting about this with Ruth is I think that we often look at this text and we're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, Ruth was married to one of Naomi's sons. What's really interesting is that Ruth chose to do this, even though the Hebrew in 1-4 around marriage, um, it's the same verb that is used whenever a people would conquer another person. So in many ways, Ruth and Orpah were conquered, were taken, and yet Ruth chooses to stay and say, hey, what if we try to be about kinship and family in a new way? That they together somehow would create a new life. Ruth affirms to live, die, and worship in Naomi's homeland. They embraced each other, despite cultural and religious norms to the contrary. And somehow these two women found enough healing to forge a genuine friendship without causing, Ruth didn't say, and my claiming and, and clinging to you doesn't mean, Naomi, that you can no longer mourn and be bitter and be sad. But it merely means I'm going with you and you aren't alone. They made room, neither lost their identity in the relationship, And it was the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, Ruth and Naomi, really two women that should have been enemies, foreigners, and yet here they are not only friends, but kin. In the absence of convention, they did something utterly foolish. Melissa Fleur Bixler, passed, she's a Mennonite pastor and an author um, with a new work coming out this week, actually, called Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, puts the absence of convention in this text this way. The Book of Ruth. It is about death along the way, about the death that happens when grief gives way for space of another, when we clear out the closet of our life and let someone move in. I remember this when I hear Ruth's vow to Naomi, not as triumphant, but as aching. Ruth, in this way, changes the way I hear Jesus call to disassociate from family. What if instead of rejection, we are meant to hear a call to the expansiveness of friendship, opening up our lives to others, some of whom we may not have expected, being surprised by friendships that find their way to us? What if friendship opens up a different kind of fertility, one that is non-procreative, one that yields only flowers that never turn to fruit, beauty without production, without possession. Ruth and Naomi remind us, as does Jesus, that the space where God's life occurs is in companionship, a spark of God's life, unexpected, unplanned, uncalculated. What might it look like in the spaces of our lives if we were to live into some absence of convention 
especially in how we think about kinship and friendship. What, what might it look like to have the presence of beauty without production in our lives? What might it look like in our day-to-day life, right? What, what absence of convention might we take on or step into so that we may more fully live into a presence of relationality like Ruth and Naomi? In your life, thinking about it, or in the world, yeah, what do you all think that might look like on the day-to-day? Or do you think that Ruth and Naomi, you just want to chug it out? Which is totally fine, too. You can chuck it out. And I would love to hear why. But. So I don't know yet. I'm not, I haven't that jump yet. I think I'm, I'm really struck by something I feel like. I've, I've never picked this up before. Like, I always, I have actually spent a lot of time with the story in my life. Because I think it's always confused me. Or it's been like, oh, Ruth's just like being loyal. But it feels kind of, it's not, which is not true. It's definitely true, like, but it feels like that's the thing, really. And it's, I'm really struck by how much Ruth, she's going to care for Naomi, but she's also, like, making herself a burden to Naomi, in a way. Like, because of convention, like, which is probably really uncomfortable for Naomi. And so I'm thinking about in, in Ruth pushing forward with this radical friendship, like she's actually, she's not just like giving up herself, and like being like, you know, this selfless, loyal woman. That I she's burdening Naomi. She's, right? she's being yeah. like, no, 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 we, we, we entered into this contract, now we're going to, we're going to follow it through. Um, and I, you know, I left my life for this, so like, we're, we're gonna like take this all the way to the end. Um, and that's a great provocative. And so I don't, I haven't connected this to like my own life or our own life yet. That I, because I'm, I'm still, I'm hung up on that. Like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but I think that matters for how we think about Ruth and Naomi's example ourselves. And I don't know how yet. <laughs> yeah, I think something I've been thinking about is in the absence of convention, where does the burden fall, right? Like if, especially in relationality, um, and does that shift? Or, um, yeah, it's kind of later, right? Like with Ruth and finding a partner and Boaz, you know, it's almost like Naomi's like pushing, being like, okay, you're here with me, now it's your job to sort of help us find economic security and power again. But yeah, sort of where, where is the burden, where is the power um, within a new way of being in kinship? Any other thoughts around in the absence of convention? what fills that space relationally and all its complexities. I feel like this speaks really loudly to the power of a chosen family, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, we're all born into families, but we also pick the people that we're with um, in my own life because we were picked by the birth parents of son, right? Like, she picked us out of a, a lineup. That would be the wrong way to put it. But I'm going to be a flyer. There's a four-page pamphlet about me if you want to see it. But, like, that's a responsibility that we were chosen for him. And, you know, everybody's relationships have up and down, ups and downs. Mine have had really big ups and really big downs. And there's been plenty of tough stuff where, you know, we made the choice, right? We were like, hey, you're gonna stick with this? Yeah, let's stick with this. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely are, are each other's chosen 
family. And it's, uh, it's such a powerful bond to have that. This, I mean, yes, I think uh, Ruth is being a little bit of a, a burden for sure, but she's also like, no, I mean, I would go where you go. Like, that's some powerful stuff. Like, we are now the same people, and you don't get out of that, which is so, yeah, it's just such a powerful thing to be. also speaks to the idea that sometimes, like when we're in deep grief or whatever it is that's going on, sometimes we don't actually know what we need. Yeah. And sometimes if we're able to make ourselves vulnerable enough, we can allow someone to potentially speak <coughs> to our deep need and, and help fill that space. Mm -hmm. um, Thanks, Brooke. Yeah, that's Often in the deepest of grief, we may not fully know what we need or who we need. Um, and perhaps it is others taking a risk to say no, actually. And I'm going to go with you through it. Yeah. Thanks for that. Any others? What does this text in the absence of convention and how? It resonates in the absence of convention with our own lives and our own relationships. Where is it connecting? Where is it raising tension? I think I, um, as we are halfway to Golgotha, right? Halfway through Lent, halfway through absences. I think with this narrative, what I keep coming back to is how Ruth um, and Naomi, by society's standards, in their absence of grief and in the absence of convention, were open to the presence of foolishness to something that really didn't make any sense, that shouldn't make any sense. And yet, even with all its complexities, right, Naomi's still bitter and deeply grieving. And Ruth, I'm sure, right, like from being conquered, still has a lot of trauma from what has been unfolding. Yet in the depths of the absence of their grief, they allowed for the presence of the foolish and the what if. And just as we continue to journey toward Golgotha and Easter morning, um, it is utterly foolish. Utterly and completely foolish. And yet, somehow, that's the very presence that we're being invited and walking toward. So yeah, I think in the absence of convention, in the depths of despair, perhaps it is a bit easier to be open to the what if and the foolish and the well, I really don't have anything to lose. So I'm going to cling to you, and you're going to cling to me. And we will take life as it comes. Really kind of does sound terrifying, because to Marie's point, right? Like, burden <laughs> often feels, right? Like, who's burdening whom? Power. But I think there's also something really convicting about seeing someone who shouldn't be your kin and saying, no, you are mine through it all. And let's wade through these absence, this absence together.
Yeah. It's kind of, I think, what we've got on the text tonight. Um, thanks for talking. And Elizabeth is going to lead us in our benediction. So we Jan Rogers like to say to each of you gathered here tonight, your presence matters. Your, your presence in this gathering tonight is important. Let us grieve in the gaps and reach into the absence and hold the emptiness with both hands. Yet let us also make an offering of gratitude for those whose work made a way for us. And then let us take up that work that is ours. And let us move with the grace of the generations gone before us whom we will never know, but whose stories still sing within our making.